0: Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com/pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. All right.
2: Well, gentlemen, welcome to deconstructive criticism.
1: Thanks for having us, Aaron.
2: Yes. We're looking forward to it. Uh, So have I. Uh, Normally I do this with only one guest because that's what my Zoom and microphone can handle. But now I've rented this space uh, for a bundle of NFTs and I'm ready to interview two people at once, which is why we're doing it uh, on video Uh, because I Mm -hmm. want my, my listeners to be able to see you guys because you're speaking in English and they might not be able to tell your voices apart Unless they have faces attached to them,
1: that's not usually a problem, given how different we are. Yeah, uh, but yeah.
2: Well, well, we'll get to that uh, because normally <laughs> I, I I start off by asking the guest uh, who they are, uh, so that they may be able to define themselves uh, before my prejudice steps in. You know, so <laughs> uh, I will divide you uh, and uh, have you answer that question. Separately, So uh, we'll start with Konstantin Kissin. Who are
1: you? Well, before the great plague of 2020, I was a stand-up comedian. Uh, and uh, Francis and I started uh, a YouTube show uh, and podcast called Trigonometry uh, in about April of 2018. So just approaching three years ago now, uh, which is doing uh, pretty well now. We've got over a quarter of a million subscribers uh, across the different platforms, but particularly on YouTube. Uh, and we are, think of ourselves as sort of the, the Joe Rogan of, of the UK or the Joe Rogan of the European space, maybe. Uh, we invite different guests from different political uh, viewpoints and we discuss uh, cultural and political and social issues, uh, particularly, you know, the, the clues in the name Trigonometry. We, we, we are interested in having conversations with uh, controversial people, uh, people who are outspoken in some way, people whose opinions are for some reason considered problematic or difficult. Uh, and we have a genuine conversation and we, you know, we, we, we think of it as making people three-dimensional again. I think particularly in the last year, less so in your country, but in our countries, everything has become like this on a screen. Uh, and uh, it's very easy to put people in a box. It's very easy to think of people as avatars rather than as actual human beings. And when you have a conversation with someone over an hour and you actually listen to what they're saying and you give them the space to express themselves, they become a little bit more three dimensional. And that's always been a a big focus for us. But just before Francis takes over, you know, my background is I was born in the Soviet Union in the early 80s. My family, going back generations, uh, you know, my grandmother was born in a gulag. Members of my family were oppressed by the Soviet regime. Uh, You know, uh, my grandfather, who who ended up in the UK, which is my connection to Britain, how I ended up here to some extent. He said the wrong thing at the wrong time in the late period of the Soviet Union and had to essentially flee the country into exile here in the UK. So I've always been someone who who had the direct experience of what it's like to live in a society where freedom of expression. Uh, isn't valued, doesn't exist, isn't considered a first principle. And so to me, uh, the big reason that I felt very strongly about starting our show and discussing some of the issues that I'm sure we'll get onto is that I know what it's like when freedom of speech doesn't exist. Uh, and I, I worry that in the, in the West now, a lot of young people in particular are forgetting why it is that free speech is considered a fundamental value of Western society.
3: Uh, I'm Francis Foster. I again was a stand up comedian before this entire uh, nonsense kicked off. Uh, And uh, when I I was a stand up, I would consider myself of the left. I wouldn't say beloved of the left, but certainly accepted. However, when trigonometry took off, uh, my leftist card was uh, rather swiftly swiped from my mitts. And uh, I now find myself where I am uh, politically homeless. My mother is from. Venezuela originally, so I have had a a similar experience to Constantine, but also different in a a way as well. When I grew up in Venezuela, it was a capitalist country, not without its problems, highly corrupt. Um, (laughs) the, The political system didn't work and so on and so forth, huge inequality. Hugo Chavez came to power in 1999 and slowly but surely started to implement socialism. It was a brand of socialism that was supported By all the left wing firebrands, particularly in my country uh, and also in the United States, people like Bernie Sanders, Jeremy Corbyn, Owen Jones. Uh, Unfortunately, Venezuela became more and more corrupt until it it eventually collapsed. What we have is hyperinflation now. Uh, Make up a number when it comes to the Venezuelan currency, and the chances are the inflation rate will be higher. Uh, A quick example of how bad things are when you go into a shop in Venezuela, no one puts prices on the goods in the store, because by the end of the trading day, they will become obsolete. And I've rapidly seen that happen to my own country. Family members who are journalists having to flee for their lives, uh, people having to flee because the country is no longer safe, because the police see prosecuting crime as a sign of right-wing oppression. Mm, Where have you heard that now? So things in Venezuela are very, very grim. And also as well, starting to see what has happened In our own society, with people becoming more and more and more socialist, more and more left-wing, we have had a a political commentator go on TV and say the words, I am literally a communist, and people think that that's absolutely fine and nothing wrong with that. And suddenly being placed in 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 an area where you say things which you believe are true, things like free speech is important, things like, I don't think uh, communism is a good idea. I don't think socialism is a good idea. And suddenly being treated as if you were saying something which is incredibly controversial, when we all know it is not.
2: You've in part answered a lot of the preceding questions that will follow. <laughs> uh, but uh, so it's interesting that you both define yourselves as comedians. It's not like, I'm a nice person. I enjoy football. It's uh, <laughs> both of you define yourself as comedians. And may I ask you, uh, uh, how did you guys uh, individually uh, get into comedy then?
3: Well, I'll start with myself. I got into comedy because uh, there's, there's, there's quite a tradition in this country of people starting off as teachers, whether it's secondary school teachers or primary school teachers, and then segueing into comedy. Uh, notable examples of this are people uh, like Frankie Boyle. Frankie Boyle was an English teacher, and then he segued into comedy. And there's, there's numerous examples of people who have done this. Joe
1: Brand was a nurse, I think. Yeah, Joe said. Brand. Yeah, there are lots of others. Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. There's, there's lots of others. So I started off as a teacher, uh, rapidly found out that children are deeply unpleasant and not wanting to spend much time around them. So I started off in comedy. The, the thing that attracted me to comedy when I started in 2009 was essentially it still had a punk element to it, whereby people used it to push the boundaries. And let, let's be honest about it. A lot of the time they pushed the boundaries. It wasn't always done particularly skillfully or well, and it was done for gratuitous reasons. But nevertheless, there was there was this desire to push boundaries, see how far you could go, the jokes that you could make. And gradually over the years, I've seen uh, comedians, but also audience members and club members become more and more and more censorious. And the thing that I find particularly worrying when it comes to comedy is actually how you now see comedians applauding when other comedians are deplatformed, have their Twitter accounts cancelled, when there's been a mass pile-on. And to me, that seems to me the very antithesis of being a comedian, because if you think about the comedians that we both love and respect, whether it's you know a George Carlin or Patrice O'Neill, or Bill Hicks, or you know whoever it may be, this would be the very antithesis of what these people stood for. Mm.
1: Yeah, and for me, in terms of getting into comedy, I probably got into comedy quite late, uh, only about seven years ago. Uh, so I'd already had a, you know I'd had my own business, I'd had a life, I was married, like all of that. But the reason I think I got into it is, you know, I never really, I call myself a stand-up comedian because that's what I used to do. But I always thought of myself more of as a satirist and I was more interested in satire than comedy. Uh, and, you know, the reason for that is that I was uh, looking at people like Francis mentioned, uh, George Carlin, Bill Hicks. And yes, these are people who had jokes, but, but they were also trying to say something about the society that they lived in. They were trying to expose some of the things that were happening in society that they didn't agree with. And, you know, uh, we think of people like Bill Hicks now as just this great comedian who had a great reputation. Actually, his last appearance on Letterman was cancelled and it wasn't shown for about two decades, I think, Mm. uh, afterwards. And then you watch it now and you go, there's nothing he said there that was even offensive, let alone worthy of not being being shown. So um, I think that's... I've always thought of it as the job of, of comedians and satirists was... To be the person who's saying something now that 20 years from now, everybody will go, well, yeah, of course. But then in that moment, it's difficult and it's controversial. And I just found myself being increasingly frustrated with the comedy environment itself, where in terms of the industry, it became super woke, super progressive, completely uninterested in anything that pushed any boundaries. In fact, the way people pick comedians for television or whatever else it might be seems to be the opposite of that. As the blander you are, the better. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, I think uh, with the, the YouTube show that we do, we've started putting out a few comedy sketches and things like that. It, it fills that niche for me much better than the stand-up comedy career that I had in the past where, uh, as every comedian now knows, you have to, you have to do your least interesting material yeah. uh, in order to succeed Unless you're playing to your own audience, then there's a bit of a difference. But when you're coming up in the comedy circuit, you have to censor yourself. You have to neuter yourself. And I just I, I was so uninterested in doing that. In, in many ways, I'm glad we had a pandemic and we had a lockdown because it just allowed me to be free of all that. And frankly, I have zero intention of going back to the comedy industry per se. I still have a lot of creative things that I want to do. We, we together have a lot of creative things that we want to do. Uh, but just going back to that that woke insanity is is not for me anymore.
3: I did do a gig uh, a couple of nights ago, one of these Zoom gigs, and uh, I did some of the stuff that I thought was very funny, and uh, some of it uh, some of it went okay. Some of it was me uh, it was uh, conf- uh, mated with uh, confronted with abject horror. Mm. So it's very very interesting how the more honest that you are, the more that you do the comedy that you want to do. The more you realize that some people will love it and some people will be absolutely alienated by it. Mm. But when you're exposed to a comedy club crowd, night in, night out, you get used to denying those parts of yourself, which, oh, dare I say, you know, more interesting, more controversial. Mm. And you can't do that type of material. I mean, well, you can, but the reaction is not going to be consistent. And if your reaction is not consistent, then you're less likely to be booked. Yeah. It's, that's a simple fact. Well, and,
1: and look, I'm aware that we're sa- sounding like two whiny, sort of like alt right Nazi adjacent comedians, or which whatever. is what we are. No. <laughs> but like, the reason, that, the, I, I, you know, I'll tell you, Aaron, when I started noticing it, I used to have a couple of routines. One, one was about someone being racist to me. I have right. since apologized, Aaron. Don't worry about <laughs> it. Uh, and what I found. It was almost always the people from an ethnic minority background, from an Indian background, a Pakistani background. And we have a very diverse city here in London, right? There's lots of people of every background or black people or whatever. They would always laugh and it would always be the white liberals who would sit there and look around and go, "Ooh, am I allowed to laugh at that? And that's when I was like, come on, you know, you, you, you are, you know, it's funny, but you are, you're, you, you're too afraid. To even express yourself in mm. that way, and that's when I was like, "Yeah, this is getting frustrating now."
2: You know. And what is it they are afraid of?
1: They're afraid of being judged by other people. Uh, we live in a society now where everyone is constantly second-guessing themselves and making sure they don't say anything the wrong way, don't make the wrong noise, don't laugh at the wrong joke, don't you know whatever. And, and the polls have shown this. You know, in this country uh, and in America, over sixty-five, seventy percent of people now feel wary of expressing their actual opinions mm. uh, for fear of criticism. Uh, the polling consistently shows that all over Western countries. Uh, and and it, it, comedy is a place where that, that is bound to, bound to hit as well.
2: And, and when, in it, when did this
3: start, approximately?
2: How many years ago did you notice?
3: Well, I was talking to a comedian who regularly appears on TV who has now since blocked me. Not on Twitter, not because of anything I've done. But because of the people that I've interviewed, which will tell you something. But I remember talking to him and he was saying circa 2005 was the peak of the UK circuit in that you could talk about anything and that the audience would pretty much, you know, provided you did it well and skillfully, they would go with you. But over time, we've seen a gradual erosion. And I think Brexit, like everything, like everything, it. it Brexit acted as a catalyst. It acted as a catalyst for the culture war. It acted as a catalyst for things like political correctness. It acted as a catalyst within comedy as well. And I think after that happened, people became more and more sensitive mm-hmm. and more and more withdrawn because, you know, everything became binary. You were either Brexit, you were Remain. You were either pro-EU, you were racist. And as a result of that, you saw comedians who had never once been political all of a sudden go out and do uh, material about everyone who voted Brexit is thick, stupid, white, and racist. And I think when that happened, that really created a wedge and and divide. And people actually started to feel that if they laughed at certain jokes, that therefore reflected their positions, their opinions, and also as well their
1: moral standing. Can I just say, we both voted Remain, so we're very good people. We're not racist at all. I I Um,
2: understand, and we'll be getting back to you not being racist. Uh, but uh, but um, how's that Brexit, Brexit thing coming along for you guys? Because it's like you broke up with the rest of us, but you still have your stuff in our apartment.
1: Yeah, well, it, look, who knows? I think the pandemic for us has taken over. Uh, I think it looks like there will be some a lot of short term discomfort in the long run. It probably will be OK. Uh, and let's be honest, in terms of the whole vaccination thing, the EU really hasn't covered itself in glory. And I think that's opened quite a few people's eyes. And, and you know, if you're Remain voters like us, you're looking at the last few weeks and you're going, maybe we were right to leave. You know, yeah. like there's an element of that happening right now.
3: I mean, you even so there's there's a journalist called George Mombiot in The Guardian. And for, I, I, I don't know if uh, the Guardian the, the, the
2: Guardian is known outside of England.
3: Yes. Yeah. <laughs> OK. So, and I mean, George Monbiot is one of the most left out of all the good journalists at The Guardian. And he actually published a tweet about why he's changed his mind on the European Union. A lot of people have been forced to reconsider and change their position. Uh, uh, even the most staunch Remainers because of the EU's conduct regarding the vaccines.
1: Yeah. So the short term, you know, you've left the relationship, it's always painful, it's always unpleasant, it's always sad, etc. But long term, you know, the reality is, and this is something that I was aware of, even when I voted remain is, in the long run, the EU, you know, it's not, it's not a particularly sustainable project, you've got countries with completely different approaches to life, economies, cultures, uh, you, you know, economic cycles, borrowing, you know, all that sort of thing. Uh, trying to be wedged together in one political union, but now also economic union, and it's it's probably long term, not not sustainable. So we might look back twenty, thirty years from today and think, "Thank God we left."
2: I am pretty sure you will. Uh, I, I I sort of like the common market. I I don't like the political union. Uh, but this interview is not about me because uh, you were, you said that you were considered being racist, and when I did my research into you, Constantine, I found out that you're an alt-right problematic comedian and also the reigning Jewish comedian of the year.
1: Yeah, mm. the only Jewish Nazi comedian in the world. It's a great niche. Uh,
2: yes, it must be. Uh, but I'm not yes. sure you're the only one because I exist.
1: Um, oh, you, you do <laughs> exist. Oh, you're, you're you that as well. Okay, so we can we can play all the skinhead synagogue gigs in the world.
2: I'm pretty sure we could. Maybe we should do a tour together. And, 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 and Francis, you're a transphobe who opened for Eddie Izzard.
3: Yes, Yes. exactly. So, uh,
2: and, and by now you're both cancelled by the comedy circuit in England.
1: Look, we don't, I, I don't like to say that we've been cancelled because it, it puts you automatically in this whiny position. We walked into what we're doing with our eyes wide open. I didn't at the start. I know. I told you what would happen. You didn't believe me. That's your problem, right? But we knew this was going to happen. We did. You know, I said, look, if we talk to controversial people, everybody will automatically assume that we agree with every single thing every single one of our guests has said. And it's the most moronic position ever. We've interviewed uh, a guy called Lord Andrew Adonis here. He is like the arch Romainer, you know, the the, the character. If you were to draw a caricature of a, somewhat deluded, but very sort of passionate Remain supporter. That's Andrew Adonis. And then in the same year, we interviewed Nigel Farage, the architect of Brexit. Mm. Uh, and, and equally, you know, we've interviewed other people on the left. We just released an interview with the co-founder of Extinction Rebellion. I, right, I saw it. will be very happy to, to hear that, mm. right? So pass, pass that on, please. Um, <laughs> yes,
2: I, I, uh, I liked but, it, even though, you know, yeah. I don't agree with him necessarily.
1: Yeah. Uh, but the thing is, we don't agree with lots of our guests necessarily. Mm. You know, for example, Francis and I couldn't be any foot more liberal when it comes to drug policy. You know, we think drugs, for the most part, should be decriminalized, etc. But we've had social conservatives like Peter Hitchens on our show talking about why, you know, marijuana is the root of all evil and whatever. And we can still have a conversation. And to me, that's that's valuable. Mm. Um, you know, so so. Um, yeah, I think uh, we knew, we walked into this with our eyes open. Uh, we knew that people wouldn't like it. And uh, yes, there are lots of people on the comedy industry circuit that wouldn't, uh, wouldn't want to book us and wouldn't like us. There are also people who would book us mm. and, and who do like us. Uh, and I just, I, I think there are legitimate people who have been cancelled, who've had their livelihood taken away, who've been doxxed, who've been harassed, who've been physically attacked, who've lost jobs. That's not happened to us. We, we've done reasonably okay out of it. We have a successful podcast. So, you know, it's a trade worth doing. And I think it's really important for people like us who do discuss cancel culture, who give a voice to people who've actually been canceled. Is that uh, why you
2: started Trigonometry?
1: No, I, we started Trigonometry because we wanted to understand what's happening in the world. We, we, we noticed as comedians that, as I said, you go on stage, and you say a joke that two years ago was funny and now <gasps> is the reaction. And like, what happened? Why was that? Why is suddenly, uh, you know, so we used to be able to have a conversation with people from different political views. Suddenly, no, you must think this. And, and it, it started to feel a little Soviet or a little fascistic to me, like this whole thing of there's only one opinion and anyone who's, who's, who doesn't have that opinion. And we, first of all, just wanted to understand what's happening. Now, three years down the line, we have a better understanding. And yes, now we do see, uh, as, a, as a show with a significant subscriber base, we do see that we have a responsibility to illuminate some of the things that are not being covered by the mainstream. And one of those is what happens to people who, who don't conform with the narrative. And gi- give you an example, we had a guy on the show uh, last year called Nick Buckley. And this man, he has a... An, MBA? He has an MBA. He has an MB, which is member, It's called Member of the British Empire. Basically, you're recognized by the state as having achieved something very important for your society. And the reason he got this is he ran a charity in Manchester which dealt with underprivileged young people and helped them to get off, mm. off the floor and on their feet and succeed in life and thrive mm. and make the best of themselves. In inner city, Manchester, very mixed, diverse intake of people that he worked with, etc. Well, he made the mistake last year of reading the BLM manifesto and saying there seems to be something other than just opposition to racism. This seems a little Marxist to me. This seems a little whatever. He said that in public and he got fired from his own charity.
2: Yeah, I I listened to that interview and it fascinated me. And there was one other interview, the Mackie one, I think. Was that the name of the historian? Uh, David Starkey. Starkey, Starkey. Starkey, sorry. I I just, for some reason, want him to be named Mackie. You want him (laughs) to be Scottish. You're desperate for
1: him to be Scottish.
2: (laughs) Yes. um, And he said something. uh, And then I saw the first interview you did, or at least the first one who was posted to YouTube. And you were talking with some uh, liberal guy from the Financial Times. He was a foreign correspondent. Mm-hmm. He didn't yeah, and he said, and it was so interesting to me because it's a few years old now. And he said something about, well, we know that Russia tried to give money to the BLM uh, to uh, do protests. And this was about the previous election, the one between Hillary and Trump. And then this summer, we saw huge protests before the election between Biden and Trump of uh, BLM-inspired protesters. And I actually did the same thing in my podcast when the BLM protests started. I went into BLM's webpage because it's online. Anyone can access it. And I read their manifesto, and then I read some interviews with the founders, and they say, or at least two-thirds of them say outright that they're trained Marxists. Marxists? So it's it's, it's quite obvious that they want to dismantle Western society as we know it.
1: Exactly.
3: Yeah, and the thing is, is... People who have not experienced really, you know, hardcore socialism, communism, they see nothing wrong with the words, you know, overthrow capitalism, you know, abolish the police. Because they've always lived in this system. They have no understanding, and to use the word, of how privileged they are, how lucky they are. It's only when you've seen the system collapse that you realize that if we don't have the system, what we have is chaos. And look, I believe everybody should be allowed. If you believe the, the, you know, that capitalism should be abolished, good for you. And you should be allowed to go, and pro, uh, you know, to go and make your voice heard. But what I do not agree with is what happened is using racism as a way to, you know, to transmit your ideas as an anti-racist platform and also smearing and intimidating people who disagree with you and using the word racist against them as a way for, to shut them up. Mm. It's, 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 it's repellent and awful. Yes, but it seemed to have worked quite beautifully. So why do you
2: think that so many comedians now all over the world are starting shows like ours, respectively? I mean, you ne- mentioned Joe Rogan, and you see yourselves as sort of the Joe Rogan of the UK. My name is Aaron. I'm a comedian. I start. I started doing this in 2016. That's uh, way later, I think, than I noticed it, because Sweden is a social democratic country. Uh, so we have, I mean, I think... Partly you notice the resistance against this totalitarian movement or these totalitarian movements if there's some sort of uh, intersection between uh, uh, socialism and Islamism and, and wokeness and Islamism, it's kind of strange um but but here in sweden there's been no resistance to it because we generally we're a consensus society so if there's a new idea that you know everyone should agree on we just do that and then move on (laughs) and it's just as totalitarian as it was before so i mean it's i mean i i had a i noticed a a harder time getting booked after a while but I started out doing Fritzel jokes in my career, so <laughs> that might, might have had something to do with it. So why do you think so many comedians over the West are starting podcasts like this now? Because there's I, quite a few. I, th-
3: I think, yeah, there's quite a few. I think, Aaron, it's because, to use the term, we are the canaries in the coal mine. We are the ones who are at the coal face. We are the ones who play with the boundaries of what is and what isn't acceptable. And when you feel the boundaries suddenly change over the months and years, and you know that your jokes haven't changed, your approach hasn't changed, the topics that you're talking about haven't changed, but all of a sudden jokes that used to work one or two years ago now no longer working or maybe just getting a sharp intake of breath, you start to understand and realize that the culture around you is fundamentally changing. And I realized when something was going on was when I, I did a joke that always worked and it didn't, right? And, I, and I, I was talking about it with my friend who's a comedian. I went, well, I don't understand. The, the joke is intelligent. The joke, you know, dissects this particular uh, you know, idea, blah, blah, blah. And he went, yeah, but it, it feels racist. Went, well, what do you mean? He goes, well, you talk about that and that feels racist and that means people feel uncomfortable and that they don't have permission to laugh. And at that point, you start to realize, okay, there's something happening here where people no longer feel comfortable laughing at an idea, they don't feel comfortable expressing an idea, and all of a sudden you start to feel these ideas and these conversations become more and more suppressed mm. and then you see the people who do st- who do speak up, who do you know discuss things and what and whatever else being deplatformed you know being cancelled, et cetera, et etc, and you start to see the way the culture is moving. Mm.
1: And I, before I answer your question, I have a slightly different answer to your question. I just wanted to piggyback off what Francis said. It's what he normally does, man. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's an interesting thing because m- m- what I noticed is people stopped listening to what you're actually saying and they just started listening for keywords. right? So I, for, I'll give you an example. I had a whole routine, which is actually in many ways a very woke routine because it makes fun of white people. And the premise of the of the routine was we need a special Olympics for white people. Right. Right. Because we're not very good. Right. And I made a whole series of jokes about how white people are not as good at running or whatever. It was based around the fact that, no, look at the hundred meter final. It's always like seven black guys, uh, seven black guys and a white guy just like happy to be there. That was that was the sort of gist of it. And just the mere mention of any sort of difference between us that. The observable reality is, for whatever reasons, which we don't even need to get into, uh, black athletes seem to do better than white athletes in certain sports, which is just an observable reality, mm. right? That in itself, just noticing difference made us uncomfortable, whereas before, I think comedy was a way to to celebrate difference and to recognize difference and to be okay with that. And I remember Francis was actually there. He was hosting the show, and I did I did a, a spot, and I did that routine. and. Half the audience laughed. One guy laughed a lot. Half the audience laughed. One guy really liked it. And half the audience were very tense. And when I came off stage afterwards, the one guy who was laughing came up to me and he said, I loved that. And he was the only black guy in the room. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And that's when you know something is odd. Something is off. When you're, you, I was making fun of white people and white people are uncomfortable, but not because I'm making fun of them, but because even the mere mention of race has, has come up. But anyway, to answer your, your actual question, uh, I think the reason that comedians find ourselves a lot in this space is that uh, great comedy is about finding some kind of truth about life, about human beings, about different groups, whatever. And we've, all, we've been trained to pursue the truth. And we now increasingly live in a society where you're not supposed to do that. You're not supposed to look at what the truth is. As you said in Sweden, you're supposed to look at what is the consensus? What is my neighbor saying? What is the media telling me to think? What, is, what are other people around me? What are other comedians talking about on stage? That's what you're supposed to believe. And if your reason for getting into comedy was you wanted to find the truth, maybe prod a bit, explore a bit, find the boundaries, find the lines, trying to get to some kind of thing that we all know is true, well, you're not actually allowed to do that in comedy anymore. So where else do you go? Well, it seems that the internet and YouTube and podcasts is the place where those conversations are now happening. I think that's probably the reasons that people have got into. And that's why, you know, there's so many successful shows in this space Mm. because people are so, so hungry for it. And it's interesting, Aaron, that, you know, I am encouraged by some things. We had a a a comedy gig here in London called Comedy Unleashed. I'm sure you'll be familiar with some of the people who who used to perform there and maybe the Nye itself. Um, And also, you know, we're talking to a few TV people about getting some of our comedy sketches and stuff like that on there. And they know, Mm. they know. They see, as we say in English, the writing on the wall. They feel the tide is changing. They feel that the general public, ordinary people... They don't have the appetite of the same jokes about the same politicians. Trump is orange. Boris Johnson is fat. You know, all of that has got boring now. And I think, you know, I've always thought that there will be some kind of revival at some point. And I I think it may be coming. I'm optimistic.
3: I I think people, uh, TV commissioners are seeing ratings plummet. And they are more and more aware that the content that they're producing, particularly the comedy content, is not to the palate of the majority of people, particularly in this country. And look, i if you anecdotally, you know, you talk to the plumber or the electrician who comes to your house and they go to me, oh, well, what do you do? I go, I do comedy. And this is always how the conversation will go. They went, yeah, I used to love watching comedy back there, back in 2000, whatever else. I used to love this particular show, that particular show. But I'm going to be honest with you, mate. I watch it now and I'm like, no, it's not really for me. I find it all a bit boring because it is the same type of jokes presented by the same type of people with the people who believe and see the world in the same way.
1: But they're different colours now, and that's the most important thing, right? They're different. They've got different places. Different colours. Yeah. Yeah. And,
3: Yeah. and, And look, and people are also aware that they're being talked down to they're being lectured and they're being patronized and people don't like it. It doesn't matter who you are, where you're from, what job you will you do, all the rest of it. People want to make up their own minds and they will make up their own minds because they're adults. And when comedy starts, stops treating people like that and instead uses it as a medium to regurgitate the correct opinion again and again and again, well, it's no longer comedy anymore. It's what, it becomes a tedious lecture.
2: I'm very happy to hear it. I hope you're right. Because uh, if England turns and the U S turns, then maybe comedy will, because as far as I'm concerned, comedy has been dead now for a few years and uh, doing what I do in Sweden is basically uh, flailing in an endless
3: night for the light switch. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, I, 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 I will say this. I, um, uh, my, my, partner who is uh, very, very left wing, uh, progressive, all the rest of it. We, we talk about this and back and forth. And and she said to me, like, when I was in a, in a moment of despair, I'm like, ah, oh, this isn't going to work because X, Y, and Z reasons. Said something to me, uh, which I always stand by, particularly now, is that capitalism always wins. <laughs> and it just does. Capitalism always wins. If you can make money out of it and you're going to get an audience and people are going to enjoy it. Well, then I have a piece of
2: bad news for you. Uh, Klarna, uh, one of the IT miracles of Swedish engineering, uh, it's a payment solution for online payments. Maybe you've heard of it? Klarna? No. No? If you shop online enough, you'll sooner or later uh, come across it. Uh, uh, They are now helping the Americans uh, to uh, sort of uh, sort through businesses which are black-owned and Hispanic-owned or, you know, then maybe – owned by white people. It's all made in China. So, I mean, it's all made by the same skin color, but they're helping to divide up so that you can actually shop online. Uh, you can buy a pair of jeans from someone who, who is black instead of someone who is not black, for instance.
1: Hmm. Yeah, well, Francis has his mother, as he mentions every single episode, and live stream is from Venezuela. Therefore, this is a Latina-owned business right here, Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, we're going to be just fine, Aaron. Yeah, we're going to be, we're very progressive.
2: So uh, may I ask, because you've been doing this now since 2018? 2018, indeed. Yes. So uh, being comedians, having interviewed all these interesting people, what have you learned? What is the problem, and what is the solution?
1: Mm. Well, I'll tell you what I've learned, and it's a reflection both of the guests that we've spoken to, but also some of my own thoughts about uh, about this and my own experiences, different things I've seen and read, etc. To me, this is a civilizational issue. uh, And you put your finger on it earlier when we were discussing BLM. Uh, We are in a battle... Between people who want to preserve Western civilization and the things that make it Western civilization, and people uh, who don't realize that if you change everything, all the good things that you have will not remain in place. Mm-hmm. Right? If you if you destroy the system in which you live, which has many flaws, by the way, I accept this completely, and I think one of the greatest challenges for people on the right of center is to address the issue of inequality in our society. Um, there's been a lot of research which shows that inequality is bad for everybody including very rich people Uh, and I think that's an issue that everyone needs to think about and and to target resources at but uh, fundamentally it's a a battle uh, between people who want to preserve western society and people who want to destroy the fundamental principles that make it western Uh, freedom of expression freedom of research and science Rationality, the scientific method, uh, logic, reason, all of these things that came out of the Enlightenment, which were modeled on, on antiquity, some of the, the ancient Greeks and Romans, which, whose laws and, and approaches and philosophies we inherit to a large extent. Um, the, the, there's essentially people who are coming to say that all of that is evil, racist, slavery, oppression, blah, 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 and must be torn down. Uh, and it's sort of, you know, it's it's a tale as old as time. We've seen it. every great empire, every great civilization gets a little bit bored of itself at some point. And I think that's where we are. We are in the in, in the struggle for the future of Western civilization. And uh, The things that, that I have learned from it is this
3: idea that everybody is a two-dimensional character, a person or an avatar to be destroyed is simply not true. We're all three-dimensional. We are all human beings. And most importantly of all, this idea that you can have simple solutions to deeply complex problems is just wrong. It's false. It's, and it's completely childish. Uh, the example of BLM, you know, we're going to abolish capitalism, we're going to overthrow the police, and all of a sudden racism is no longer going to exist. Well, I'm sorry, that is just not going to happen. And in fact, what is going to happen is you're going to unleash a whole load of other problems with your very simplistic solution. And you see that right the way through. You don't only see it on the left, you see it on the right, you see it, you know, all these narratives that people just regurgitate constantly. And the more you look into any particular particular problem or issue, whether it be Brexit, whether it be inequality, whether it be trans, you start to realise that these issues are very complex, they're very nuanced, And this idea that they can be solved through a slogan and a chant is quite simply moronic.
2: Yeah, I'm not as optimistic as you guys, because uh, when I look at it, I mean, Sweden is kind of special. It's a small country, um, and we are uh, uh, very consensus-seeking and uh, afraid of conflict, and freedom of speech is sort of a new concept for us. We got it with the EU when we entered in the early 90s. Um, But when it comes to... uh, You guys over there, I mean, don't you have the like, uh, all your universities are now packed with academics who are, to say the least, left leaning? And uh, Sadiq Khan is uh, staffing uh, City Hall in London with uh, diversity officers who will, uh, you know, uh, watch over you and make sure you don't say or do anything that could be uh, construed as racist. So, I mean, there's so many things that needs to happen, aren't there, to uh, there are. solve this problem uh, and reclaim the West, if reclaim is the correct word that you'd want to use, considering your political climate.
1: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices Yeah, well, I, I mean, I think you're, you're not incorrect in terms of assessing the reality as it is at this very moment in time. You're right. That is the position. Mm. Um, having said that, uh, I'm, I'm reassured by a couple of things. First of all, uh, I always make this point. 400 years ago, all of us having this conversation and most of the people listening and watching would have been burnt at the stake by now. And we're not. We're still alive. We still have an ability to talk. We still have an ability to communicate our ideas, number one. And number two, you know, I remember being a teenager and I have a lot of faith in the willingness of teenagers to rebel against whatever came before. And I think that wave is coming. If you're growing up now as a teenager and you can't, you can't say anything, can't do this, can't do that, blah, 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 blah. I think a lot of people will rebel against that. Um, and, you know, in the same way that, if you think about, you know, we mentioned Bill Hicks earlier and how his last appearance on Letterman was censored. Well, the reason it was censored was because at that moment, everybody was fearful of the conservative right, the religious right in America, mm. who wouldn't let people make jokes about religion and wouldn't let them blaspheme. And that's why people like George Carlin and Bill Hicks, that's why they railed so hard against uh, organized religion, which no comedian really does anymore because it's sort of like that battle has been won, if you like, mm. if you, if that's your perspective on it. And so, you know, over a 10, 20, 30 year period, culture can change and will change. I agree with you, we're not in a great place. I agree mm. with you that we've allowed as societies in the West, uh, for a lot of our basic values to be eroded. Uh, you mentioned Islamism, that is a big problem in terms of not necessarily in terms of numerically or the damage that it does in terms of, of course, that you get these attacks and everything else. But actually, you know, we have a case in our country at the moment where a, a teacher showed a car, the cartoon, the Charlie Hebdo cartoon to his class in a discussion to illustrate what people consider blasphemy. And, you know, dozens of people turned up outside the school and the school bowed to, to that mob. They mm. bowed down to that. That's a big. These are all big problems. I agree with you, Iron. But I do think uh, there will be a new generation of people who who rail against that. And my only hope is that when they do rise up and rail against that, it's not too bad. The, the way that that rising up manifests itself mm-hmm. is more of a sensible approach as opposed to some kind of you know unpleasant violent struggle, which historically can happen. So uh, I do think there's a backlash coming, and that's why. You know, we talk to people on all sides because we're trying to create a space where people can realize, actually, we're all human mm. and we do have a lot more that brings us together than separates us. And we mustn't ever, including those of us who are you know, concerned about all this work stuff and whatever, we must never allow ourselves to become the thing that we hate and, and to, to, to put people into these two-dimensional uh, pigeonholes and say, oh, this is a bad person, this is a good person, and then get rid of all the bad people. That's how it's always done. Uh, we mustn't ever become that. What we must do, however, is to defend our values and to explain why they're important.
2: Because that's what worries me, that the next generation who will rebel about, uh, against the woke uh, paradigm will be full-blown fascists, just out of spite, if nothing else.
1: Um, well, uh, It's a legitimate concern.
3: It is a legitimate concern that people will go too far, particularly young people, However, I feel that this is important in that you have to have faith in your fellow human being. You have to, because the moment you lose faith in them, the moment you start to believe that they do not have good intentions, I think is a moment when all is lost. We have to hope and retain that hope and the belief that things will get better. I think people are waking up. I think people are realising that this cannot continue. We cannot live in this society, where people are atomized, where people, you know, are in constant conflict with one another, where everything is racist, everything is an example of white supremacy, everything is about privilege. We can't carry on like this because if that continues, then what will happen is we live within these little groups and we will constantly look at each other with wary, being wary and with suspicion. And you, society, can't function like that.
2: Uh, now, I have a specific question about England because I think you've
1: answered most of my questions perfectly. I feel like we're doing a test here. He's yeah, just given yeah, us a grade. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that is a B minus. Yeah, yeah. You've answered most of our questions pretty well. Mm-hmm. Here's a, Constantine, B minus for you, A plus for Francis. Uh, it, it's, good, it's good to be back. Yeah, I'm so, back in, in the test environment. This is
2: my face, Constantine. Constantine. <laughs> this is, this
1: is yeah. my, my face, I was born looking critical. <laughs> and it has affected my, it affected my life poorly I can imagine That's not a great face for a marriage, is it?
2: Yeah. No, it's not a great face for a lot of things I mean, would you like tell to wear it this though. while
3: having sex? Yes <laughs> I tell you what, though As a customs officer or a border guard It'd be brilliant yeah. Oh, thank That's you, you I, 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 will, uh,
2: I will make sure to apply <laughs> for, uh, Because <laughs> sooner or later I will need another job, I suspect so my question is about Labour and anti-Semitism. And I was wondering, is the anti-Semitism within Labour, is it true or is it an organised campaign by the Israel lobby?
1: <laughs> well put. Look... I love the way you look to me. Oh, you're the Jew. Go for go it. On, go on, go on. Go do, do your Jew stuff. Yeah, go yeah, on. yeah. Bang yeah, on yeah, about yeah, it.
3: Yeah, yeah. I'll go and uh, make myself a coffee whilst he rails on for about 20 minutes
1: about this. Uh, look, Aaron, this is another example, just like when you asked me about if we've been cancelled from the comedy industry. I think this is really important that people on, on our side, as well as on other sides, are careful about this sort of thing. Uh, is there a perception within left-wing parties in many countries including in the united kingdom that uh israel and palestine is a struggle between oppressor and the oppressed yes is that then sometimes misapplied to all jews as opposed to israel as the political state yes was there other an, anti-semites in the labor party yes did jeremy corbyn under his leadership allow those things to go unchecked yes right uh does that mean that the labor party is institutionally anti-semitic and every member of labor hates jews and would put them in a camp if they could I, yes. don't think, <laughs> I, I don't i don't think so i think we've got to be careful uh i i i think there was a problem in that the issue was not dealt with properly um And the small number of people, and it would always have been a small number of people in the Labour Party who were genuinely anti-Semitic, that that meaning in the same way that when we talk about racist, racist people exist, right? It's not the three of us, but racist people do exist. There are people in the Labour Party who think Jews are inferior or superior by being greedy and shifty Mm. and whatever the, the, the thing is. There were a small number of those people. Were they dealt with properly? Probably not. Uh, I'm wary, though, of these broad brush, you know, the Labour Party is anti-Semitic. What I would say about it is there was definitely a difference of treatment of those accusations in the media in general and everything else, which is, uh, you know, the the polls at the time were that over, I think, 85 percent of British Jews thought the Labour Party was anti-Semitic. Over 80 something percent of people thought Jeremy Corbyn, the leader of the Labour Party was anti-Semitic. A number of prominent Labour MPs resigned from their own party who were Jewish because of the allegations and their own experiences of anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. And I just found it interesting that all those things being the case, it wasn't more of a big deal, if you like. That wasn't more of a conversation. And the reason I say this, imagine for a moment, if you would, that 85% of black people in Britain thought that the Labour Party was institutionally racist against black people. Imagine for a moment that 80 plus percent of people thought that Jeremy Corbyn was racist against black people. Imagine that pretty much every black MP had resigned from the Labour Party on the basis that the Labour Party was racist against black people. I think it might have got more coverage. So it's, I think it's a complex one. Uh, I feel, it feels like I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth there. I think we've got to be very careful making these broad accusations. Uh, but I do think there was a problem within the Labour Party. Uh, and of course, obviously, this being politics, it was weaponized by the the, the opponents mm. of the Labour Party, of course, it, and it would be. Um, so, yeah, I think there was a problem. I think it was probably not as widespread as people like to make out to be. And I also think there was there was some discrepancy in how that was handled by the media. And also... You know, just from a personal experience, and I really don't like talking about this, but I did find that it was very interesting when people ask me, well, look, you're Jewish, like, what do you think about it? And what I'd be like, well, I think there's a problem in some elements of the Labour Party. And I'd get non-Jewish people go, really? But come on, that's just the media. And I wonder if they would feel that way if it was a black person saying it was there was racism mm. in the Labour Party. I don't think it would. So there's definitely a thing about Jews, and you'll know this as well as I, you know, yeah, but you're successful, you're going to be fine. No, maybe it's true. I mean, Jews are pretty successful historically. We've survived everything. We're the most oppressed minority in history by far, and yet thrive, survive. We're a tiny minority of the world population. Jews are what, just over 30 million in the world, Mm. punching way above our weight. And, you know, maybe we can take it. I don't know. (laughs)
3: <laughs> I just want you to know that some of my best friends are juiced. All oh,
1: right. Well, you mean me. You don't have any friends. It's just me and you now and, yeah. and our producer, Anton. That's yeah, exactly. About
3: it. Yeah, well, it's
2: been a pleasure talking to the both of you. And uh, I hope to be able to interview you again, because I think in the coming years, there will be reason to. And also, do you read books? You read books. Yeah. Oh, yes, we do. Okay, then uh, please send me your addresses and I'll uh, uh, send you a copy of my book and you'll Get to know a bit more about me, even though most of my material is in Swedish. Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. No, we'd love to read your book and uh, we'll read it. And we uh, would love to have you on our show as well at some point. That would be great, too. I
2: think it would be interesting. And uh, give my best to Andrew Doyle, because I know you know him. We will do. Yes, we do. And Brendan O'Neill, if you get a chance to see Mm. him again. We'll do that. Yeah, we will do indeed, Aaron. Thank you so much then. And I hope to see you again soon.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having us. Bye. Bye. Take care. Bye, bye, bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from
3: Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather
0: jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands.